Welcome to The Meaning of the Movie, our podcast about what matters most when it comes to the film. You are about to hear a spoiler-filled discussion about the themes, the characters, and why this film is worth watching and thinking more deeply about. And this film today is worth watching and thinking more deeply about. I'm your host, Rob Stennett, and I'm here today with my co-host, Andrew Harmon. Andrew, what's up, man? Oh, what's up? Howdy. How you doing? I'm good, man. <laughs> Don't you know? Don't you know? You betcha. I'm not doing this, dude. I'm not going to do a bunch of bad Fargo accents. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, we're not doing that today. I thought this was our opportunity to do that. Um, yeah, we are doing Fargo uh, today. Our first Coen Brother movie ever. Um, I was talking to a friend last night, and he was like, oh, what kind of movies do you do for your podcast? And I'm like, you know, we do a classic and then we do what I call a current. And so a classic is anything older than five years. A current is anything within the last five years. Um, and I strongly believe as movie consumers, we should be consuming both. We shouldn't be consuming what's coming out right now, what's happening, what people are reflecting and making art about the world. And we should be watching movies that are like in the canon that are some of the greatest stories that we have or just stories that we love to rewatch and revisit. So we try to reflect that on the podcast. Yes, we do. And this is this is what I would sort of call like a classic, right? Like Fargo is in certain Mount Rushmore's of movies. It's certainly on it, it's on the AFI top 100, right? It is. It's number I believe it's 84 on okay. the AFI top 100 list. Um, it is like Ebert, Scorsese put it in their 10 best movies in the 90s. Um, many people think it's the Coen brothers' either best film or right up there in their top two or three best films. Um, you know, and the Coen brothers are filmmakers who I just adore. Like, I've I mean, it's, watched. It's the film that, like, put them on the map, right? Like, they were around. They'd made, like, three movies before that. But this is the one where, like, people, like, were paying attention. So this is the this is their breakout film. Like, right. let me give you a quick Coen Brother history. Let's do it. Um, it's worth doing. Their first film is called Blood Simple. Mm -hmm. It was really low indie film. It's actually great. It also stars Francis McDormand, and it's just a thriller neo noir set in a small Texas town. Super micro budget, but got it's them out on like the map. West Texas, right? It's like uh, yep. you you talked about this when we were doing our vengeance episode. We keep talking about that vengeance episode. I know. <laughs> vengeance ties back into a lot of different ones, and Blood Simple yes. and Vengeance are very much in conversation with each other. Um, and then it goes on to Raising Arizona, which is Nicolas That's Cage. Right. Have you ever seen Raising Arizona? I haven't, but that was always in the conversation as well, especially when it comes to Nicolas Cage's best work. Yeah, people often ask me, is Nicolas Cage a great actor or horrible actor? And one of my, he's great and special, Raising Arizona is one of the first movies that I think about and recommend. Yeah. Um, then they try to write um, a movie called Miller's Crossing, get stuck on it and write this movie called Barton Fink, which is John Turturro, John Goodman. It actually wins at con. And so uh, that's probably the first big artistic stamp that was put on them. Miller's Crossing comes out a little bit later. Uh, that's really loved. And then they get a bunch of money and they make this film called The Hudsucker Proxy, which is going to be their Frank Capra like kind of it's a wonderful life modern take on it it starts tim robbins um and it flops in the box office like an absolute disaster 
does not do well at all. And so they're kind of dead in the water. And so they go back and they make another low budget feature and that's Fargo. And then Fargo all of a sudden explodes. And I feel like from that moment on, they became a thing. Like their backlog is totally respected. It got nominated for Best Picture. Frances McDormand wins Best Actress. Like it just all of a sudden becomes a thing and they become a thing from here on out. Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly in that film lovers canon of movies that you have to watch. So one of the questions that I have for you, Andrew, is like you had never seen it before. Right. And so what sort of responsibility do you feel as a film lover, as someone who like geeks out of like I consider you a serious film guy, someone who thinks deeply about film, someone who consumes them, someone who like has a love for movies. So what imagine if I was your co-host on this podcast and I didn't think deeply about movies? (laughs) (laughs) I could. But that's what John Boland's for. So um (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. Uh okay. We'll just uh bounce right off of that. (laughs) You'll never hear that. Uh, (laughs) I love you John. Um But, like, what sort of responsibility do you feel when you approach a classic? When it's one of those films that are like, okay, I've heard about this forever. Mm -hmm. What sort of responsibility do you feel to like it, to not like it, to think about it? Like, what are you thinking? I feel like I go into a lot of these movies like this with, like, this fear and trepidation of, of I have this responsibility to like this movie. Right? Like, so... For the last, I want to say, 15 years, one of the movies, my top five movies that I need to watch is The Shawshank Redemption. And I've never watched it because I know that I'm supposed to love this movie when I watch it. And I'm never I never feel like I'm quite in the perfect headspace to watch Mm. the movie and love it. And so I just keep not watching it, right? Which is weird. And I should just watch The Shawshank Redemption, which is not the movie that this podcast is about. But yeah, movies like The Godfather, or like I went for a really long time without seeing Jaws, or like movies that are just in the canon, right? Like you, if you love movies, you're supposed to have seen fill in the blank. And I feel like Fargo is one of those movies that like, I haven't ever heard anyone talk about Fargo and not talk about how great it is and then try to do a Minnesota accent afterwards. Right. right? Like it's it's just one of those iconic movies that is so iconic. that Everyone's like, oh, it's just like it's beloved. So I went into this movie really like ready to fall in love with it in the way of it being like charming and dark is, I think, what I was expecting But yeah, I felt a lot of responsibility to like really like it and then be able to talk about why it's so great having watched it. And here's the problem with that. So like Everything Everywhere All at Once, a movie that we covered, a movie that won Best Picture, that sort of stuff, comes out last year. And it just kind of comes out of nowhere, right? Like it's the Daniels Brothers who made music video, made a random movie with... um, uh, Harry Potter, I'm, I'm, I'm spacing on his name, Daniel Radcliffe. Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> so, you know, with, with I'm Harry imagining Potter. those two making a Harry Potter movie, and it's bananas. <laughs> yeah. By the way, I like that you called them the Daniels brothers, because they're just the Daniels, and they're not related. But if you see a picture of those two people, imagining them as brothers is hilarious. I know, it is. Yeah, they're, sorry. It's the color Tall, brothers, gangly, white guy, and kind of like a shorter Asian dude as brothers is hilarious to me. They're just the Daniels. They have no relation other than their first name happens to be Daniel and they're friends. Um, my point is this. You're sure. They made, they made this movie. No one had any expectations. And then all of a sudden people are like, oh, my gosh, you have to see it. 
this is the greatest thing ever made. And then I had some other people go and see it and they're like, I don't know. It was kind of weird. It was all over the place. But I think the problem was they walked into it with the weight of expectations. Right. And movies shouldn't have to carry that weight of expectations, which they inevitably do. Fargo should not have to carry the weight of like, oh, this is an all time film. One of the best films ever made. You should just go in to see it like, oh, there's a poster and there's some snow and a dead guy. What's this movie about? That's how you should enter a movie. But the problem with so many classics that I'm nervous to recommend to people is because it's like, I don't know if it can carry that weight of expectation sure. as you go into it. Yeah. And, and I think there's a lot of movies that do like I went for a good a good portion of my young adult life without having seen The Godfather. And I saw it and I was like, this movie slaps like this movie is so good. <laughs> yeah. Right. I guess if, if you don't know why they're supposed to be good, I think if someone has like picked something apart and like, you know why it's supposed to be great. And then you go in sort of with your own imagined idea of what it is, um, then it can be disappointing if it's not that. But just the whole idea of, yeah, something having to both uphold your expectations as well as perform on its own is a a double layer that can be hard for movies to do. Because you just, you come in and you're like, okay, impress me. And then eventually like, well, why was this the best thing ever? Like I've had this experience with classic books, with classic films from like, I don't know, is this overrated? Is this great just because of what it did? You know, like, and so I think that's a problem with classic films. So with all of that said, yeah, what yeah. were your feelings about Fargo? How did you feel watching it? Yeah. Um, being the guy on this podcast that seems to kind of uh, rain cloud over beloved movies, I r- was really ready to not be that guy for this movie. Um, and I am uh, sad to report that um, I'm not sure I get or love Fargo as much as most film people do. I kind of finished it being like, I think I saw it. I think I got what it was doing, and I'm not sure that I loved it. I don't think it held up to the weight of the expectation that has been put on it for the last, like, 20 years for me. Why do you think this movie is, uh, like, beloved? Why do you think it is on so many lists? Was it an accident, or is there a reason of, like, why this movie is talked about so much? So, I do think this movie does an interesting thing, which is, it is, like, a dark murder mystery so like there's an expectation for what that kind of movie should feel like and this movie is not that because everybody is so like oh hi how are you like everyone is so kind of like simple and lovable that it it feels completely different it feels kind of warm and cozy while dealing with like hitmen and murder and I right. think that idea of like, like, honestly, the all of the posters you've ever seen for Fargo, like or even like the TV show does it a, a lot now, which I haven't seen any of the, of the TV show. But like Fargo is done in like a knit sweater font. And yes. then there's like a blood, like a bloody corpse in the in, in the snow. So it's this juxtaposition of like, let's go to the buffet and get all the lovely food. And then like, you know, uh, someone gets murdered on the side of the road. Um, and I think that juxtaposition is really charming um, to some people. Well, and even if it's not charming, it's so different. How many film noirs are set in New York? How many mm. are set in L.A.? How many are set in Chicago? It's like there's only three places where any movie ever can be made, right? There's only a few different cities. And yeah. all of a sudden, like, nothing is made about Fargo, North Dakota. Nothing is made about the kind of, like, far north of America, And this movie just felt like 
in some ways it felt like a documentary, right? Like it felt like, oh, we're going and seeing people who we just don't normally spend time with in film. And that, like, I can tell you when that came out, that was definitely part of the charm and discussion about it was not only was it charming, but it was just so fresh and innovative and different, that setting. Yeah. One of the things that I thought is if there was a Mount Rushmore of movies about the Midwest, I would put this movie on it. Like, this movie feels so Midwest America to me of, like, how simple everything is. And I don't mean that pejoratively. Um, like, and I think sort of some of that is the meaning of the movie that we, we might get to sort of like the final scene of them in bed and, you know, like Norm, I think we're doing all right. Right. Like that idea of like the simplicity of, of life and, um, simpler desires and, you know, just kind of, uh, hospitality and, and that kind of that feeling and that feeling pervades everything in this movie. And then they slap it on top of a fairly classic, like crime story. Yep. Um, so to 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 me, it was a, an, sort of an interesting look at the Midwest. But the thing that I was that was hard for me is like I read Ebert's um, his r- review of this and he described some of it as like a satire. And that was the thing for me is I felt like it kept trying to almost be a satire, like it was trying to like poke fun at something or like make a point about something. I never really quite felt like it got there. It just felt very much like we were just living in this space and there also was crime. Um, I I think part of like, I think satire is a bad word, like phrase because I don't think he was satirizing anything. I think it was no. mostly like almost like a love letter of their childhood. Like almost if mm. you and I would set something in Pueblo, like if we made a film noir <laughs> called Pueblo. To be clear, made... we're both from Colorado Springs. We're not from Pueblo at all. Pueblo right. sucks. <laughs> I'm wow. going to come from Pueblo for a second. <laughs> Pueblo, Pueblo is the ugly stepsister of Colorado cities. We're not from there. <laughs> We're, we're not and I don't think they're from Fargo, North Dakota either, but they're kind of setting it. First of all, you just did a drive by in Pueblo. That was brutal. Um, <laughs> second, um, they're kind of picking on an area that like is something that they can pick on and attack a little bit. But but with love and that sort of stuff, yeah. of, like they just know it really well. And mm. like say say that a murder happened in Pueblo, but then they went up to Colorado Springs then they went to Manitou and then, you know, all these sure. areas that yeah, we know yeah. really well. Yeah, um, that's the same sort of thing. And all the like this was just a reflection on like this society, like casseroles are almost a mm-hmm. character in this movie. They're so many <laughs> times, you know, in it and that sort of thing. And so I, to me, what I love about this movie partially is it just feels so lived in. Yes. All the characters in this movie, like there's this moment where the guy goes and he kind of t- he's shoveling his driveway and then he mm-hmm. gives a whole testimony of like, well, and this guy is, says, I'm going crazy out the lake. And, you know, he's telling this whole story. And I was just like, I imagine when they call cut that guy going back to shoveling and then he plays a card game that night. He just felt like a real character, not a character who comes on for a moment in the movie as a bit part. It was like, no, he just felt real. Does that make sense? So many people in this movie feel like, oh, they are people who live in this area and as as i was watching it i was like that happens so rarely in movies that it feels like oh there are real people in this movie versus characters or movie stars or whatever else right and i think they nailed that and i think for me maybe there was too much of that for me which is why i think maybe 
it ended up feeling sort of drifting into this sort of like vanilla zone for me where I was like, I I understand what this movie's doing. Like, I'm on board, but like, I, I'm not sure why everyone remembers it. Um, it doesn't feel as iconic as I think as I was expecting. Um, but that scene, that's, that's so funny that you bring up that scene, that performance, and even the way it's shot with like, you don't ever see the like police officer who he's talking to's face because as soon as he gets yep. out of the car, he like puts on his giant hood that looks like Kenny from South Park. Yes. Um, and they're shooting from behind him. So he just has this long, like giant tunnel hood on this police officer that's taking a report about a possible suspect in a triple murder. And they're standing out there in the middle of the road. And he's telling the story that is somewhat reminiscent of how Michael Pena tells stories in the Ant-Man franchise, where he's just like going off on this wild, like almost tangent of just repeating everything that possibly happened. And then he's like, yep, and that's about it. And then goes back to showing his driveway. Right. It's like it's 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 a really again, it's a really charming scene. Like it's it's um, it's kind of funny. Like it's it's. I was surprised at how kind of like lightly funny so much of it was. I think that's the point of why people love it is it's a movie about a kidnapping and a, at the end, how many people die? Like six people get brutally murdered in this in this movie. And it's brutally it's murdered, brutally murdered. I mean, the only thing I really knew about this movie was like the last scene with the wood chipper. That's the thing everyone talks about. And so I think I did have an expectation of this being a little bit more like Stephen King ask of like more wood chipper in this movie. Um, and that doesn't really happen until the very end of the movie. So I did think I had a much more elevated expectation of the degree of sort of violence in, in, in this movie, especially having seen like No Country for Old Men and knowing sort of the degree of violence that um, the Coen brothers are capable of. They're not Tarantino, but they don't shy away from it. And knowing about the wood chipper scene, I did kind of think that's where we were headed, that it was about sort of down home people, but that it was going to be grisly murders the whole time. And it kind of isn't that. So let's get into the categories now. Sure. Let's do it. Do, do you have a most meaningful character? Who is the most meaningful character in this movie? I, I think that, so. Here's here's the, my, my hot take. I think the most meaningful character in this movie is not a character. I think it is like Fargo. I think I think hmm. the the environment of this movie is sort of the the most meaningful character. I think there are some amazing performances in this movie. I think William H. Macy gives a phenomenal performance. It's an incredible I, performance, bro. He, he's he's amazing. I, I almost answered with him, and then I was like, I, because I don't really understand this movie in the way other people do, I, I, it would feel irresponsible to me to like pick one of these characters as being like the most meaningful to me, because I feel like they all kind of wash together. The opening shots of this movie, like there's three shots that open this movie, which is just William H. Macy driving his car. And there are three, yep. it, it, it takes like... Uh, I didn't time it, but it feels like a minute and a half of <laughs> like the very yeah. 90 seconds of the movie is just this white, like white out conditions with a guy driving towards you. And then he drives kind of like you're watching him drive parallel to you. And then he like I think he drives away like it's it's these really long shots of just a lone car driving across a completely barren snowy landscape And the amount of shots in this movie that are just like totally barren snow it feels really oppressive visually it does. In, the, in a lot of these shots. But then all of the people are not treating their environment as being that oppressive. 
they're all so like it's and and, and and so to me that is the most meaningful thing of this character is the juxtaposition of all of the characters to what should feel like this dreadfully oppressive environment and th it still f somehow feels like a warm sweater or all all of the people still relate to it that way so to me that is the overarching like most meaningful thing that drives towards the meaning of this movie I think that environment is I, th I think you're totally right. The oppressive environment is part of what creates these characters. The snow, the I mean, snow is so ever present in this movie. And funnily enough, this was like one of the warmest winters ever that they shot this movie. So they had to bring in a bunch of extra snow and that sort of stuff. Oh, really? Um, yeah. <laughs> little Roger Deakins has talked about that. But the Coen brothers were adamant about like this has to feel like whiteout. It has to feel like snow because it's like. This harsh wintered conditions is what made these people this way. And really, there's two outcomes for what these harsh winter conditions do. One is it makes them really folksy and nice and kind. Or two, it makes them just about as evil as Hannibal Lecter. Like Jerry Lundergaard, to me, is one of the most we talked about. Hans Gruber, we talk about the Joker, we talk about Hannibal Lecter. Jerry Lundergaard, to me, is one of the most evil villains in movies um, because that of is, his decisions. That is such a hot take. You've, you've got to defend that. Because to me, Jerry's just kind of an idiot. But you think he's like actually a really dark, evil person. I was so struck watching this that his wife is gone and he's never once thinking about, like, is she okay? How's she doing? He kind of at one point says, how's Jean? And he's like, who's Jean? And he's like, my wife, you know, that sort of thing. And so he's... Let me talk about Jerry for a moment. Let's um, talk about Jerry, because he for sure for me gives one of the most interesting performances and is one of the most interesting characters in this movie, far and away. Here's part of the reason that I love this movie is... There are so many scenes about who Jerry is that are outside of the murder itself, right? So, like, one of the scenes that I love in this movie is he goes and the guy comes in and he's asking for the true coat. And he's like, I didn't want the true coat and sail in. I didn't want that sort of stuff. And Jerry's like, well, they do that at the factory and that sort of thing. And they're like, he's like, well, I didn't want it. And he's like, he's like, well, I can't take it off. He's like, OK, I'm going to go talk to my boss. He gets back into the room and he's like, well, my boss has never done this before. And then he he goes and gives him the deal. But you just see like what a scummy guy Jerry is and every single interaction he has. For starters, he he is the boss. Correct. He walks in and goes and talks to one of the employees and they like talk for two seconds about something completely innocuous. And then he walks back in. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, to me, that's just like car salesman-ness like I expect anyone who is a salesman to be pulling that to me that's Michael Keaton in The Founder that's uh Justin Timberlake in The Social Network right like if you're a salesman if you're trying to make a deal happen like you're pulling that stuff so to me that wasn't particularly smarmy it's just typical salesman behavior but you see how wrecked that man is. You see, like, like he has this moment where he's like, you're, you're an effing liar. And he says that to him. And when that guy says the F word, you see the hurt that it took out of him to say yeah. that F word to another human being. And that, was, that really struck me emotionally of, like, Jerry mm. is such a leech 
that he is bringing out the worst in humanity at every single person and every single interaction he has. So I'm not doing a great job articulating this, but I'm going to go back to it. Okay, let me tell you why Jerry is super evil. One, you meet him and he lies to that guy initially and it's just... It's just gross. It's smarmy car dealer stuff, but done sure. a real, real dark way. Two, the first time he meets Carl and the other guy, he's lying to them about like what he's going to do. And most of all, he offers them $80,000 when he's going to get a million dollars out of it. And so he's doing this deal that is like such a he goes out to drinks with them, offers them $80,000 and he's going to take that $80,000 and then he's going to split it in half and give them 40 and keep 40 for himself. And that's the deal of a million dollars. That's what his plan is. And then he goes to dinner that night with his wife and he's totally fine like a psychopath. He's just having dinner with her, pretending everything's totally okay, that sort of stuff. Then he goes to his father-in-law, cooks up another scheme that, you know, is probably there, but like he wants to like um, find something for him. And so Jerry is just going through and just everywhere he is, he has this like web of poisonous lies that ultimately like comes back to roost. And he's never caring about his wife. His son is like, where's mom? He never cares about his son. He never cares about his father-in-law. Just every interaction that he has, he's like leeching off of something, someone, and he never gives anything back. Uh, human or compassionate or whatever else. Um, And even to Marge, he's lying to her. He's belittling her and that sort of stuff. So I'm like, man, every time he's on the screen, it's just kind of villainous poisonousness uh, that is really powerful to me. That is a fascinating description of him. As I was watching it, I was chalking up all of his decisions and all of his to basically stupidity. Um, So what you're seeing as sort of psychopathy, which is a really interesting way to read it. I, I think like I don't think you're wrong necessarily, but like you were saying, like he's never really worried about his wife in this kidnap situation. Right. To me, that was that he was actually too dumb to realize that she might be in danger, that he just figured he had this under control. He was going to hire. He like talked to some guy who had a criminal record at his shop. And then that guy vouched for a dude. And then that dude vouched for another dude. And so then when he came back, he was like, yeah, they're good dudes. It'll it'll be fine. And they're going to kidnap my wife and we're going to do this thing. To me, it was this idea of the simpleness. Like he kept coming up with these schemes and to him. He was like there was no danger in it to him and it was going to be fine. So he wasn't worried about his wife or particularly worried about his son or telling his son where his wife was because he didn't particularly think that they were in any any danger and it was just going to be fine. And every time something went wrong, right, very, very simple plan here of like this will be easy. And then a thousand things turn down the road and he can't possibly clean them all up. Um, To me, he seemed so forlorn and out of control that. It, it was less psychopathy and more this like a man who is incredibly simple is so far in over his head that he keeps making stupid decisions that he he can't fathom the obvious end result of. And then he's stuck in this mess of his own making because he was honestly kind of too dumb to figure out that that's where it was headed, that it wasn't sort of this cold bloodedness so, so much as lack of intelligence. But I think the like 
the dishonesty is at the core of the meaning of this movie. This movie is about dishonesty and lying. And I, I think that true coat scene early on uh-huh. is so critical. And I also think those phone calls with the guy in the dealer and he's still like, well, you know, and he's just like he's dishonest in a way that's not stupid. He knows that he is lying to this person. He knows yeah. that he's manipulating them. And I think he keeps thinking, I deserve something in life. And he's trying to manipulate everyone else to get yeah. what he wants. There's a really important scene early on where he has his father over for dinner and he's like you know if this deal works out for us gene and scotty and i won't have to worry about anything anymore and his dad says gene and scotty never have to worry about anything right Um, and that's jerry's life right like he's under the shadow of all these sort of things and he thinks i deserve something more and i'm gonna get it and he is stupid, he is simple, but he's not making these decisions because he's dumb. He's making these decisions because he is evil and he is choosing evil. I would love to watch this movie now looking at him that way. I think there was something early on in him that made me sympathetic to him. And I don't know what it was. Like, I can't I can't think of, of, of the moment. But even that true coat scene, to me, I was honestly viewing it from his perspective as there was like a customer service situation where you have a super angry customer and you're just trying to like you're a salesman and you're trying to get the thing done and you're trying to figure out the best way to handle this. Like to me, it, it, it wasn't the fact that he had lied about the true code to begin with. Like I was I was actually like in his camp for more of the beginning of the movie than I probably should have been. And so I think whatever it was, whether it was his folksiness or something, I actually bought I was on board with him as sort of the the not the hero but not not the villain um and i think i probably misread several of those scenes and i was maybe sucked into his like cute folksy simple behavior that you're right may have been more maniacal and and i was i was duped by it potentially which may have colored this movie for me this is the whole reason i wanted to do a podcast is because it's easy to watch this movie and miss stuff like i said i saw it and missed all these things early on. And I think this movie is really layered because there are so many weird scenes that feel kind of like almost like a waste of time. Like, why are we here? What are we doing? Until mm-hmm. you really think about, all right, what's going on with them? And I think that true coat scene, my other like probably favorite scene in the movie is the scene with Mike Yamagita, I think is his name. What did you make of that scene? Okay, when I was I was saving that scene for my least meaningful scene of the movie. And when we when we got there, I was like, this has got to pay off somehow. And it didn't. And I was like, okay, thematically, this has to be about something about like big discontent or nostalgia for something early like it. But I was like, I don't understand how this connects. And to me, his whole plot line was completely irrelevant and could have been cut. And the movie would have been exactly the same to me. So. What did it mean to you? Because you clearly brought it up for a reason. Mike Yamagita was such a weird scene where he feels at first like really sad and pathetic. And then he feels predatory. And then she is like the the purpose for that scene in a plot sense is it's after that whole scene and after that whole sequence, she's getting ready to leave. She's like, I, I came down here, I investigated, and I just don't get what's going on. There's no sort of leads. And then after she has that moment with Mike, all of a sudden she realizes like, wait a minute, he was lying about his wife and that sort of stuff. And she thought about Jerry again. And she's like, this guy has similar qualities. So I'm going to go back and talk to him. That's when she goes back and she's like, hey, mm. can we get the count in the car lot? She's not going to do that She's not going to go back to the car dealership and confront Jerry again if it's not for Mike. And so I think there's a plot reason for that. But I also think, again, this movie is not 
Zodiac. This movie is not Chinatown. It is not a straight-up noir thriller where it's like every scene has to do with the plot. This movie is about humanity and all these Mm -hmm. little weird human moments. And I think that moment with Mike Yamagita is just another sense of like there are two types of people in this world there are people who are choosing light and there are people who are choosing darkness and mike yamagita is like one of those like people who are like oh this guy is choosing darkness (laughs) so here's the thing about mike yamagita is like in a movie it's like hey there's certain things that are supposed to happen and this moment leads to the next moment leads to the next moment in real life for a police officer that's not the way things happen, right? It's just like, hey, I'm in town. I'm going to have lunch with this person. I'm, I'm going to maybe go see some sites, that sort of thing. Again, that's why Fargo feels so real to me and so different is because it, it lives in this world. But then at the same time, it also hits thematically with Mike Yamagita on like this guy who is clearly um, a liar, who is clearly predator may be too strong but he's just kind of manipulating this woman who's clearly married who's clearly pregnant and he's trying to hook up with her like out of nowhere and then he's using a story about a wife that he had and then her death and then he's crying about her death and he's doing all this stuff that's pretty like predatory and villainous um and it's just showing that sort of world, and that's what gives her the insight into Jerry Lundergaard. And so that I think that's what I like about this movie so much. And I'm not saying that you have to like it or that you should like it, but to me, that's why I put yeah. it on the list, and that's why it's so fresh to me, is it's so different than other film noirs. It's so different than it's like, okay, this leads to the next case, which leads to the next case in the mystery and the puzzle. It's much more about here is humanity, here are good decisions, here are bad decisions, and we're going to wrestle with both of those in this frosted winter casserole land. Yeah. One of the moments to me that was like showing kind of how like realistically dark some people are. To me, the one that jumped out was when we haven't really talked about the two like hitmen people yet. Right. Steve Buscemi and uh, um, Peter Stromare. Yep. The name of that actor. I'm probably saying that wrong. Um, he's like in everything, but you don't know his name. Uh, yep. There's a scene where after they they capture um, Jerry's wife. Right. And they take her back to the cabin and um, they let her out and she tries to like run away. Steve Buscemi's like, you know, just like, wait a second. And he watches her like run around with the bag on her head and like falling over and almost running into trees. And he just like watches her do it for his own amusement for a while. And I thought what was going to happen was that this was another moment of like stupid people being stupid and that ultimately she was going to like run into a tree and kill herself. And then they would be in an even worse spot, right? That that his his own stupid amusement was going to lead to something, but it doesn't. He just watches her like run around and fall over and hurt herself for his own amusement. And then the movie continues. And it was this, this movie of just his, his character kind of being a dirtbag, right? Just, and not like physically abusing her, just enjoying her own pain. That to me was this weird, like dark moment, right? Because the decisions that are made of this movie are not because of plot. They're because of character and theme. And this is just like these people, like who they are is villainous and dark and evil. And they just, they don't care that like she is an animal to them and there's nothing glorifying to her, whatever else like that. It's just like, 
there's another scene where he's like banging on the TV and trying to get that. And you just see her like bag over her head, rope on her next to an open stove and just breathing there. And it's like this woman is in hell. And I think part of the reason I go after Jerry so hard is like to get out of his own financial mess, like essentially to cover his own lie. He is putting his wife through the most traumatic hell imaginable where her ultimately she ends up, you know, in a wood chipper. I guess she doesn't go in the wood chipper, but like she's probably going in the wood chipper next. And it's just like they're very much reminding us of like not to get too preachy here, but like sin. And this movie is about sin and it's about darkness and it's about the big Hollywood movie type of darkness, like murder and shooting and theft and kidnapping. But it's also about just the little human indignities that we do to each other that lead to much bigger sins. And I think this movie yeah. is a meditation about that. And that's why I resonate with it so much. I wonder if I'd walk into this movie with less expectations if I would have walked away with some of those things. And I also wonder if, like, I hadn't fallen into the trap of being on Jerry's side in the, in the beginning. Because, like, honestly, I was on his side for the first half of the movie. Yep. Like, I kind of I didn't. It's not that I wanted him to get away with his own wife being kidnapped, but like he seemed kind of pitiful and his father in law seems to be un, unnaturally mean to him. Right. Like there was no reason for his father in law to necessarily hate him as much as he did, unless Jerry's a truly awful person. Turns out he is. Um, but I, I, I think I for some reason. So the, the movie spends the first 30 minutes just with Jerry. Correct. We don't meet Francis McDormand or the Marge character for 30 minutes of the movie, which is really interesting. And, and so I think there was a piece of me that because of that, I just decided that like Jerry was my guy and that I was going to even though he seemed he was making bad decisions, I was going to. I don't want to say forgive them, but chalk them up to not evil and chalk them up to s stupidity. Well, he's, um, and I was he's gonna a give victim, a right? Like he, he I just... was, yes, I was treating him as the victim, which is how he sees himself for sure. Um, but I think I decided to agree with him, which was maybe my mistake. And he, he's being yelled at in every single conversation he's in. So he's being mm -hmm. yelled at by the guy at the true coat sealant. When he first goes to drop off the keys, he's being yelled at for being an hour late. Like, every, like Jerry is always doing something wrong. And so I think that's why you read him as something bumbly. And again, that's why I think there's a lot to this movie because they are kind of doing a sleight of hand where it's like, hey, Jerry's bumbling. You're, you're supposed to be here at 730. Well, Shep told me 830. You know, that sort of thing is going on. The true coat sealant guy, he's talking to his father-in-law the scene that really gets me that i love that i think about all the time is he's out there scraping his ice and then he just like goes nuts because he can't even scrape the ice off his car and he's just yeah. so upset and he feels so victimized and he's there in this barren parking lot by himself and he can't even scrape the ice off his car and it's just such a wonderful performance by william h macy of just him in an empty parking lot with an ice scraper and you see this guy has hit rock bottom he is right. He is the world is against him. And it's all and we know it's all going to unravel for him. Even if you don't know what's going to happen, it's like this is not going to end well for Jerry. No, no. You know, it's not going to end well for Jerry. Any anyone who starts the movie by arranging the own kidnapping of their wife, even if they are, quote unquote, the victim, it's not going to end well. For them. <laughs> we should talk about Marge, though, because you did mention the interesting point of like she doesn't show up until 32 minutes in this movie. She is mm -hmm. the protagonist. She is the main character. Um, the other reason I think this movie is number 84 on AFI's top 100 list is because 
this movie comes out in the time of John claude Van Damme, Steven Seagal, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone. Like, these are the action movie stars. These are the cops in movies. Sure. And then all of a sudden you have a pregnant woman in the middle of Fargo, North Dakota. And I think, like, that's so different than any other cop we've ever seen in a movie before. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, her her opening scene, she she has that opening scene with... um, John Carroll Lynch, her, her husband, where they have like the breakfast and everything, which t- to me was one of the most like relatable scenes of her being like, I'm going to get up. He's like, I'm going to make you breakfast. And she's like, don't worry about it. He's like, no, I'm going to make you eggs. And she's like, don't worry about it. And he's like, no, you need breakfast. And she's like, don't worry about it. And he's like, I'm going to make you eggs. And then they just get up and make eggs. Like it was like, yeah, that's like that. That feels real. That feels lived in. But like, so you have that whole scene. But then the first scene to me that was really like indicative of her character was when she gets to the highway to the crime scene where the two the two passerbys have been, you know, basically executed. And her first thing, like any other cop movie, they would, you know, turn to the patrol officer and be like, all right, Dickens, what's happening here? Right. You have like that, you know, right. Serious detective moment, and he like walks up to her with, with coffee, and she's like, "Oh, thank you so much! Like, thanks for the coffee!" And like, she's all like happy about it. And she's like, "All right, looks like they died over there." And like, she's like so like she's not. It's not that she's not taking her job seriously. She's somehow still like warm and happy and hospitable while like solving a double murder on the side of the road. That like the the level of like charm and happiness in her doesn't shift when she gets into let's solve the murder mode. And that to me was like, okay, who is this person? Like this is, this is interesting. Absolutely. Like she holds the meaning of the movie to me, which is like, and norm. I think I love that you identify the thing with eggs. And again, this movie is about decisions and it's about good decisions and bad decisions. And it's like, okay, what's, Norm is the guy who's like, he's tired. It would be so easy for him to sleep in. But it's like, we're going to spend a minute on them talking about getting up and making eggs. And then he has to go and jump her car. The prowler won't start. So he has to go and like jump her car a few moments later. And so it's like, that's that's like marriage, man. Right. Like that's I think you like the both of them so much because of that scene. Because you go like they're you're right. They're making the right decision. Right. Like you want to sleep in in the morning, but getting up and making breakfast for your, for your wife, even though she has to get up early to go in and solve a double murder. But like, right. okay, I'm going to go jump the car. Like those things that are so inconvenient in normal life, right? That you do anyway because you love someone. Um, that to me was maybe one of the most relatable scenes. I, again, you're instantly on their side because they're making good human decisions for each other. Right, because the thing is their life is not glamorous at all. And that's another big part of the meaning of the movie to me is like they live in Minnesota. It's cold. They eat casseroles all the time. There's nothing glamorous about their life. There's nothing that sexy about it. They have long kind of days where they, you know, she goes to Hardee's, they go to the buffet. There's nothing that fun that they have to look forward to. But they love each other and they care about each other. And it's like this cold in hospital environment can do one of two things. It can create selfishness and self-pity or it can create empathy and love. And that may sound too, I don't know, too idealistic or too preachy. But I do think that's what that movie's about because they just spend so much. It's a short movie. It's, you know, a little over 90 minutes long. And yep, most of like- the movie is about people's days and people's choices. And what sort of choices are you making in your day? And those choices are going to 
be what your life turns into. And if you make the small choices to lie, to cheat, to make yourself sound like something you're not, or if you make the choices to like love and serve the other person, then, um, you know, you're going to find better things. And that sounds really obvious in a message, but in a hour long movie about, or sorry, hour 40 minute long movie about murder and violence. Like that's what this is about. Yeah. So, I think that brings me to my most meaningful scene in the movie. Okay. Um, which is very short and very simple. It is the scene directly following the wood chipper scene when Marge and uh, Peter Stromare's character are driving back in the cop car. And he's like, his character the whole movie is like completely silent, hardly ever says anything. Correct. I think he gives a great performance, by the way. Like, this guy's Agreed. in everything as like generally like the evil Russian guy. Yeah. But um, she, she just looks at him and says, like, I just don't understand. She says something like, basically, life is so beautiful. Why would you do what you're doing? Like, right. I just don't, I, I truly don't get it. And he doesn't say anything. And then that's it. And that's, that's the scene. Right. It's very brief, very simple. I think his character, Peter Stromer's character, is the only character in the movie who knows that he's in a crime movie. Yes. Right. He's the only character who, like, is behaving <laughs> correctly. Yes. <laughs> like, like, I'm I'm going to do whatever it takes. Like, I'm going to shoot all of these people because they witnessed my crime. I'm going to clean up my mess. I'm going to put these people through a wood chipper so they can't be identified. Right. Like, he knows what movie he's in. Everyone else doesn't seem to. That juxtaposition of the one guy who truly is like, I think probably is uh, understands that he is evil and is OK with it versus these other guys that are but are trying to justify it. And then Marge, who has come to this place of like, I love my husband. I'm OK with the casseroles. I'm proud of him for painting a duck that's on a stamp. Right. Like, I truly am content and happy with this life in bleak nowheresville. And they're in a car together. And she says, like, I don't understand you. Yeah. I, I don't have a box to put your decisions in. Those decisions don't make sense to me. And I'm putting way more words in her mouth than she's saying. But that's that's what that scene is, is, is to me, is it's the two people who are the farthest apart in a movie and the hero at that point saying, like, I, I cannot make the mental jump to understand where you are. She she has strong enough good decisions together in her life. Right. The way that she loves her husband, the way that she chooses to interact with the other police officers, the way she chooses to be friendly and kind and hospitable and that she cannot understand the mental jump that this person has that to him is not a mental jump it's not a mental jump to him to know that in order to survive the fact that they've kidnapped someone he needs to murder three people right like that to him all of that just checks out he doesn't have to think about it to me like the the ultimate course of the decisions in your life lead to these two incredibly stark opposites yeah i think those two scenes are like i love how this movie ends i think that scene where she says, you know, you did this all for what? For a little bit of money. And it's a beautiful day out there. And, and you know, she... That's it. Yeah, that's the quote. She sees the, the harsh winter and the harshness of life as something that can create beauty. And he sees it as something of like... We, we don't really know what he's thinking, but he's essentially like selfish in every single moment 
What can I get it in for me? And he finds no enjoyment out of anything. Like one of the other really weird <laughs> scenes in the movie is like the guys go and have sex and it's like a really like gross scene for like five seconds. And then it smash cuts to them like all sitting in bed watching this night show just catatonic. And it's just like this is such a gross way to live your life like there is nothing glamorous there's nothing sexy there's nothing cool it's very much an indictment on who they are and like the sort of crime doesn't pay thing it's really showing like there's nothing great about this lifestyle and what these guys have chosen and what they're doing and so you see that in him and then ultimately she's there and then so that scene at the end, again, is juxtaposed the scene with her in the car. And then you see the meager life that she goes back to. And I think, again, why Marge is such a good character is she's just witnessed, like, the darkest, darkest of humanity. And then she's sitting with her husband, and her husband's worried about he didn't get the 29-cent stamp. He got the 3-cent stamp. Instead of her saying, like, shut up, you don't know what sort of day I had, she really, like, empathizes with him. And she really talks yeah. to him. And as someone who's married it's like you go through this hard day your wife goes through this hard day you come back together in bed and then sometimes it's like you know what it's her turn to talk and I'm just gonna listen and that's what being yeah. selfless is and that scene just strikes me as so beautiful their marriage mm -hmm. strikes me as truly beautiful and the last line in the movie is two more months and it gives me goosebumps to think about because it's like two more months until we bring this baby into this world and the question the movie asks is like what sort of world are we bringing this baby into right and to them it's like there is joy and excitement in that it's subdued and realistic excitement but there is to, to me going back to fargo itself or the landscape itself being the most meaningful character i think the way that marge responds to the winter right the oppressive bleak environment that she's in if we go back to that scene i was talking about where she shows up at the murder scene in the side of the road where everything is frozen and her first thing is being so grateful that her partner brought her coffee yep right um her response to this world that is so bleak and oppressive is like to find these moments of joy and hospitality and appreciation whereas um, Grim's Rod, good old Peter Stromer, right? Like, to me, his response to that area is it's it's about survival all the time. In order to survive, I'm gonna kill this person, right? In order to survive, I need to put this person through a wood chipper. In order to survive, I need to do whatever. He he is self-preservation completely, and self-preservation in that environment almost makes more sense to me, right? Right? It's it's an environment that should breed this idea of self-preservation, but for Marge, it has created something else. And that is it's it's not very charismatic or big, but it is it is kind and it is warm and it, it has solidified this other thing. Right. I mean, there is depth there. And I think the reason you have to, like, think about this movie, the reason I had to watch it twice is it feels like these disjointed scenes and this kind of fun, quirky detective story. And that's what it is. And that's what I thought the first time I watched it. I was like, this is like a kind of fun, interesting story. And there's some random disjointed scenes that are like, ha ha ha, Minnesota's so goofy. And that's it. <laughs> that's what this movie is. And I watched it a second time. I mean, this was years ago. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, wait, there's 
a lot more depth. There's a lot more things that are going on in this movie. And again, it's about the subject that I think has the most meaning in life, which is like our own salvation and our own sins. And I don't mean that in like a religious way as much as I mean, like, what sort of person are you, you going to be in the world and what mm-hmm. sort of person are you going to offer to the world? And this movie offers reflection on both kinds of people. Yeah. And it really paints it as not like one big decision defines who you are, but the small, meaningless decisions the compounding of them ultimately lead to who you are. Do we talk about Steve Buscemi enough? Do you have I don't think we talk about Steve, Steve Buscemi at all. My one comment on Steve Buscemi, besides the fact that he gives a great performance, like he's awesome in this, in this movie, is the fact that there are multiple scenes in which people can't describe why Steve Buscemi is funny looking. It's a great running gag. It's probably the funniest <laughs> running gag in the movie. <laughs> they're like, they're like, he's funny looking. And she's like, well, in what sort of way? And they're like, just in the normal way. <laughs> like, and I was trying to think about it. And I was like, how would I describe why Steve Buscemi is funny yeah. looking? And I was like, I'm not sure I could either. And again, he was, what's so great about this movie is Steve Buscemi, William H. Macy, Francis McDormand. They were all character actors who had, done, you know, William H. Macy had done some Broadway. Francis McDormand, I don't know if we've mentioned this, but she is married to Ethan Cohen, and so like, mm-hmm. uh, so when, she, when did they get get married? Because they do like it seems like she's in so many of their of their movies, but like w- when did when did they get together? Was it like at the beginning of their careers? Or I think was, was it later I think on. It was early on, together? I think because I mean, she was in Blood Simple, she's in Raising Arizona, um, so I think it's early on, like after Blood Simple or right yeah. along the way. And Frances McDormand has now become one of the top three best actresses in the world like right like um over the last 30 years like of all the stuff that she's done won multiple oscars like she is just she's won a tony at least one maybe two yeah and anything that she's in she's great and this is just an arrivement like arrival of all these different actors right arrive i just make up words sometimes when you talk too much but um it's an arrival of all these actors steve buscemi was just a character actor before this movie and in my opinion this is the movie that made him steve buscemi and then everything else going forward yeah he was in reservoir dogs he was in a few other things but like he was just that guy and then this movie it's like i just think his performance of (laughs) He's so funny. He's so weird. And that shot across the face has got to be the most, what, disturbing, violent thing, like, in the top ten. It's just, it's so gross of him taking the napkin and trying to apply it. And and it's just like, what do you do? And then he takes the money and he buries it out in the middle of nowhere. And I don't know, that whole sequence is just the fact that we, so... The fact that we don't know what happens to the money. Yeah. Right? There's There's... Almost a million dollars, right? Like $900,000, basically, buried next to a fence. That's where it, le- that's where it stays. Right. Like, there's, there's no, like, final shot of the money. It's, it's almost like the movie doesn't care about the money. Well, I think the movie's making the argument that it was all this for what? For this money that's going to be left in the middle of barbed wire fence out of nowhere, you know? And like, Right. Well, to me, like, if that was the point, there would be some final shot of, like, the snow melting around the money. Right. Or, the, you know, it blowing away or right. Like it just it forgets about it. Completely. Correct. Correct. Like it, he buries it and it never addresses it again. It's 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 almost as though it's completely irrelevant. Like no one gets it. I, I don't, it was an interesting choice to me because it's a lot of money. 
it, it's it's like I wanted to know like, hey, who gets it? Can I have it? Like that's a ton of money out in the middle of nowhere. And it would have been chilling to end on a final shot of the snow scraper and the whipping wind and that sort of thing. But the choice of the score, that beautiful kind of like music coming in and Norm and Marge laying in bed and landing there. It's like, this is where truth is. This is where reality is. And so that's where they want to leave you with. And I think it's such a better movie because it makes that choice. Yeah, I I completely uh, agree. I think, yeah, I, I think going back to the money is the obvious choice that I was expecting. And the fact that they don't to me is interesting. Well, we're getting to the end. Um, do you have any other thoughts of either the meaning of this movie or just your reflection on watching it and talking about it for for an hour? Yeah, I mean, I, I wished I'd gone into this movie a little bit colder um, without really thinking about, you know, this is one of those movies that I have to love. Um, I, I think I may have enjoyed it a little bit more or been more uh, charmed and surprised by it than than I, I was. I, I, do, I do think there is um, uh sort of a secret beauty to it, having talked about it, about this idea of the the way that you respond in your world, the 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 small choices that you make, being truly happy that your partner got you coffee before you have to solve a double homicide, um, you know, versus uh, just trying to worry about your own self-preservation. Um, little things like that. Like it, it is it is a, a, a movie that really is about people and um sort of beautiful while also having a scene about putting a person through a wood chipper yeah no that's well said i I think um i'm glad that you got to reflect on all that i think for me the meaning of this movie is in its ordinary everydayness it does not Mm -hmm. feel like an action movie it does not even feel like a thriller um it just really is a meditation on human beings and on these guys who like this wasn't theory to them this part of the world this was somewhere they had spent their whole life they observed all the details and they wanted to tell a story of the type of people that they saw and i think the type of people that they saw are the type of people we all encounter in life and there are some who are good and kind and decent and there are some who are offering us true coat sealant uh, when we don't ask for it and are trying to gouge every piece of whatever they can get from us. And I think that's what this movie is a meditation on. And ultimately, yes, it calls itself a true story. This is not a true story. It is very tongue in cheek that it calls itself a true story. But I think part of the reason that they did that is because there's a much deeper truth in it. Um, if you look into it and you see, and that's why I love this movie. I think because not only it's got so many incredible scenes of the gunfire of the, you know, running through the snow and all that sort of stuff, but these simple scenes that happen in cafes and restaurants and diners with this high elevated film noir caper. Um, that's why it's unlike anything before I've ever seen. And that's why the Coen brothers, whether you like them or not, they are fresh, innovative, original voices making stories that only they can make. And that's my favorite kind of art where it's like no one else could have made this movie but the Coen brothers. And that's the type of art that I love where it's not like, ah, 10 other Hollywood directors could have come in and made this movie. It couldn't happen. Only the Coen brothers can make this movie. Yeah, it's it's personal and it's and it's fresh and it certainly gives people something to talk about, which I'm glad we did here. Hey, another hour down. Talked about a great movie. All right. Well, that is the end of today's episode. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. If you want more Fargo content, the TV show actually is amazing. Didn't get to talk about it much, but I think it's the best TV show 
based on a movie maybe ever. It's really, really good. I don't know what other examples there are, but it's worth checking out. Um, And this podcast is worth checking out. I'm glad you're here. We will see you next time on The Meaning of the Movie.